Hello everyone, it's Aidan Lang here, and this time I'm here to talk about Berlioz's Beatrice and Benedict. We do like to give our audiences in every season one opera they've never seen before, and this is the first time not only that Seattle Opera will have performed Beatrice, but also an opera by Berlioz. To give something of a rarity is a great pleasure. Why this piece? We are just at the beginning of a six-month celebration of the works of William Shakespeare here in Seattle under the guise of Seattle Celebrates Shakespeare. So when the entire arts community came together to discuss the idea of this festival, it struck me that this was an opportunity to go into a collaboration with one or two of our sister organizations here. What piece should we do? The the obvious suspects are three of the Verdi uh, Shakespeare operas, Macbeth, Othello, or Falstaff, maybe Romeo and Juliet, which we haven't seen for a while, maybe A Midsummer's Dream of Benjamin Britten. But the interesting thing is that despite there being well over 200 operas written to the works of Shakespeare, there are only a very small handful which might be said to have entered the standard repertoire. The problem I find is that many of them are what might be loosely termed adaptations of Shakespeare rather than giving a truly Shakespearean experience. The European drama tends to be very well defined in whether things are tragic or comic. And the great beauty of Shakespeare is the mixture of genres within the same piece. I hit upon Berlioz's Beatrice and Benedict as an opera by which we could not only make a really interesting contribution to the festival per se, but it also gave us great scope to collaborate with, in this case, two of our sister organizations. Ludovic Morlot was thrilled to be able to conduct Beatrice. Berlioz is one of the composers most dear to him. He even shares a birthday with Berlioz. So he leapt at the opportunity to make his debut with us in this piece. And sitting over at Act Theatre was John Langs, who is also a very distinguished Shakespeare director. It seemed a wonderful opportunity to ask two of the leaders of major organisations here in Seattle to join us at Seattle Opera to make this production. When I've seen Beatrice and Benedict performed, it has always been performed with what one might term a take on it, a directorial take somehow the piece needs a bit of a helping hand. So why is this? When Berlioz first planned this opera, he intended it as quite a short piece, as a one-act piece. And then he kept adding bits, as people said, that the work is too short, so he added more and more material. Berlioz made a very conscious decision to ignore the darker subplot to Much Ado About Nothing in favor of making a very sunny, if compact, operatic evening. What he does, he takes out the entire plot level where the daughter of Leonardo, the governor of Messina, is slandered on her wedding day due to an evil plot designed to compromise her. If you look at Much Ado About Nothing, what seems a very bright and happy play full of good humour and jesting and verbal wordplay suddenly takes an entirely different turn in terms of tone. The delight of the opera is the way that two seemingly avowed opponents of concept of marriage, i.e. Beatrice and Benedict, are brought together during the course of the action. But in the opera, they're brought together purely in terms of what are known as the gulling scenes. 
Shakespeare's play, Much Ado About Nothing, hangs on a pun implicit in, in its title. The word noting in Shakespearean terms implies both eavesdropping and also spying on or observation. And the mechanics of the play are based around a lot of this observation being either false or characters being tricked into overhearing conversations, be it deliberately or by accident. So in the case of Benedict, for example, three of the characters, Leonardo, the governor of Messina, the prince Don Pedro, and the young Claudio, set up a conversation knowing that Benedict is hiding and listening to them, in which they claim that Beatrice is in love with him, but hides that love behind a facade of banter and wit, and that she's really disguising her feelings. So a really rather complex and delicious situation is set up. And the same thing happens to Beatrice as well. So the two characters are set in motion to discover their true feelings through a playful deceit. But in the play, crucially, the reason they come together is because of their outrage at the slander of Hero, who is the cousin to Beatrice. They don't come together because they've been set up. They come together and find a real human bond due to a much deeper emotional response to what's going on. So as Berlioz takes out that whole plot side to Much Ado About Nothing, he leaves us with the piece which can appear rather inconsequential at the end. And we, the audience, are asked to believe that two people who've said they will never get married suddenly get married because they've overheard someone saying someone loves them. You know, it stretches it a bit. But when you see Shakespeare's play, there's a real feeling that the marriage at the end between Beatrice and Benedict has come through both of them in a way suffering, just as Hera and Claudio have been through a passage of suffering. And that the marriages, which are both celebrated there, are going to be far more fruitful because each couple has learned some sort of life lesson. And they go into that phase of their lives as, if you like, more mature people. For me, it was very important to somehow bring this darker side to the play. But another important decision was what language do we perform this piece in? We made the decision to perform in English. Yes, it was written in French, but the very next year, Berlioz saw a production in German in a translation he sanctioned. He, he was a practical man of the theatre, and he understood the importance of an audience understanding what was going on. Berlioz's dialogues are a French translation of Shakespeare, and really quite accurate. But then, of course, we wouldn't do an English translation of Berlioz's French translation. Of course, this gave us the opportunity to simply return to Shakespeare's original text. And then it became clear that what we could do was add in at least part of that darker subplot to give a much richer experience. So over many months, I mean, it's nearly two years, I think, John Langs, Jonathan Dean, our wonderful dramaturg, and, and myself, we bounced around ideas and, and worked hard to compress the play in such a way that we could get its full momentum, but without giving the entire text. This gave us an opportunity to add back in the characters which Berlioz cut, namely Don John, his henchman 
Boraccio, Boraccio's lover, Margaret, who's the unwitting tool of the dark plot. We also added in the character of the messenger and the friar, Friar Francis, who, who finds a, a clever resolution to the dilemma later in the play, as well as needing an actor for the spoken role of Leonardo. With John on board, it meant we could go to Act Theatre and enter into a wonderful collaboration with them, whereby some of their core actors came to join Seattle Opera. So once we'd made the outline of a new spoken text, it then became very clear that what we had done was create an evening which required some moments to be amplified by opera. Ludovic, together with Phil Kelsey on our music staff, looked at Berlioz's many and varied other vocal writing and came up with some pieces which Jonathan Dean very craftily added Shakespeare's own words to, which would help to amplify the dramatic moment, but still be Berlioz. And there's a precedent for this. One of the pieces we've chosen was the Shepherd's Chorus from Berlioz's oratorio, L'Enfance du Christ. But that piece itself was never written for L'Enfance du Christ. It was actually written as a sort of elaborate practical joke. Berlioz wanted to riposte to some of his critics, so he wrote this piece and published it under an assumed name, and his critics all fell for the thing, saying, oh, this is a marvellous piece. Berlioz could learn from this, this piece. Berlioz could never have written this, and of course it was written by him. And later on, Berlioz added that into L'Enfance du Christ. What we're doing is very much in the spirit of the man himself. And now we're in rehearsal. We're all tremendously excited at, at what seems to have emerged. It is Beatrice and Benedict, a sort of new version we're offering our audience an experience which is much more Shakespearean, much more in keeping with the flavour of the festival. I know this works. I myself did this idea of putting the Shakespeare text into a production of The Merry Wise of Windsor, which I did a few years ago at the Buxton Festival. The whole evening felt heightened in a way that sometimes dialogue operas can feel that the energy level goes down as soon as the singing has finished. Here, we felt there was a bite and drive to the entire evening, which was occasioned by the elevated nature of the Shakespearean text. So I think we have the nuts and bolts and the means to make a really interesting, if you like, a new piece out of Beatrice and Benedict, but one which is governed not by a directorial concept which might actually diminish the piece or put a, a very deliberate take on the piece, but one governed by a real desire to make a truly Shakespearean evening for our audiences, and one which I actually think Berlioz would rather relish. So we have Shakespeare in the dialogue, but the sung numbers are given in a, a wonderful translation, a very Shakespearean translation by the very distinguished uh, writer Amanda Holden. And I think the bridge between Amanda's text and Shakespeare is, is also very seamless. It is a big theatre, so we will have uh, surtitles for this sung sections, but we will not be titling the Shakespeare dialogues because actually we want you to listen to what's being said and to enjoy that wit rather than looking up above the stage at titles which would be, if we were to title them, would be flying past at a completely incomprehensible rate, such as the speed of a dialogue. 
the dialogue is mainly in prose and it's not that difficult a text to readily comprehend. So what I think what we want you to do is actually listen very intently, but there's no need, I think, to do special homework. It's We are telling much ado about nothing. By all means, go and rent the wonderful Kenneth Branagh film, which is readily available. But on the whole, I think this is one to come along and enjoy. I mentioned earlier that this is the first opera, Seattle opera, done by Berlioz. Well, who was Berlioz in terms of operatic composition? He's an original. He didn't train to be a musician. He didn't play the piano. And he made his career both as a composer and as one of the first great conductors. And that became his way of earning a living. We need to remember that we're talking about an age where composers were not on royalties. So surviving as a composer was extremely difficult. Conducting was a way of making a certain quality control over one's own compositions. Berlioz was very worried when he heard other people conducting his works that the level of detail and rhythmic precision were lacking in performances. So he, he wanted to make sure that his works were given due care and attention. But it's clear that he evolved a very strong and clear conducting style and therefore became called upon as a conductor. His other great contribution is his work on orchestration, and he wrote during his life two treatises on orchestration, which became highly influential. I'd ask you to listen out for the brilliance of the orchestral writing, which is why it's so fantastic to have Ludovic, a, a great Berlioz lover, at the helm to really help our wonderful partners in the Seattle Symphony to bring out this incredible writing. Listen out, for example, to the overture, which lasts about seven minutes, and it's a dazzling piece of work. And then at the end of Act One, there's a beautiful nocturne duet for Hera and her maid Ursula. It's exquisitely beautiful. But again, listen to what the orchestra are doing there. You don't always get this level of orchestral detail and writing. But as you listen to this nocturne, it becomes very clear that the famous duet from Lacme is a, is a kind of rip-off of it in, in terms of structure, in terms of mood. Berlioz was immensely influential on other composers in many other countries, especially Russia. Wagner respected him hugely. He was an original. His operatic output consists of a sprawling work called Benvenuto Cellini, which needs quite a, um, a company in order to, to bring it off. It's a huge work, very seldom performed for reasons which become very apparent when you look at it. The Trojans, the magnificent epic, grand opera. But again, Berlioz never saw it performed complete in his own lifetime. It is a major undertaking for any opera company in the world to put on the Trojans, especially in one night. The Damnation of Faust is maybe his most performed opera, but it's partly a cantate. It's not an opera in the purest meaning of the word. It, it's, a, it's a strange hybrid piece. And then we have Beatrice and Benedict, which again is an opera comique, an opera with dialogue. So even with those four pieces, he writes in completely different styles and showing new experimentation, or, or he takes material from much earlier and develops it into another piece. So he was always searching for the new, for the original, for new sounds, and thinking ahead rather really than looking back to his place in a legacy of tradition. He's a one-off. Beatrice and Benedict is a one-off piece. And so how do I find a comparison to other operas you may have seen? I think it's very hard to do that. It's a comedy. Yes, it is. But it's a comedy in the Shakespearean sense, that in Shakespearean comedy there is also sadness and, and melancholy. 
It's a piece which features a character in Beatrice who asserts women's rights. And we, we have taken the step to include the song Sign More Ladies, which is going to be sung by Somarone. It's quite fun that Kevin Burdett, who played Don Alfonso, is now going to kind of change his tune to sing words which are completely opposite to the sentiment of Cosi Pantutti. But it bears a lot in common with Cosi in its use of disguise, of a search for hidden identity and finding people's true nature as a, as a drama goes on. Just as Cosi Fantutti is, is as much a tragic comedy as it is a comedy. So I think we should take the word comedy associated with Beatrice Menedick not to assume that we're in for a sitcom so much as a comedy which takes its characters through a much more profound journey than you would ever hope to find in a 30-minute comedy on TV. In other words, this is comedy not about having laughs so much as having the warm feeling which comes when a man and a woman finally find themselves having gone through a turbulent experience of discovery and learning. Just as we had... Um, Two sisters, uh, Marina and Ginger Costa-Jackson, singing the sisters in Cosi Fantutti. We are following a similar train by having a real husband and wife pairing singing Beatrice Benedict. So it's a great pleasure to, first of all, welcome back Alex Schrader, who, of course, did Jupiter in Semele, playing one of our pairings of Benedict, opposite his real-life wife, Daniela Mack, who is a marvellous, marvellous mezzo, making her Seattle Opera debut as Beatrice. Daniela was so thrilled when we offered her this role because it had been a role she'd been dying to sing for a long time. So it'd be great to have that sparring couple on our stage. The cast we're featuring on our broadcast night has Hannah Hip, who we just seen as Dorabella, as well as Isolier last season in Cantori. She'll be making her f giving her first uh, Beatrice, opposite Andrew Owens, who we saw in Maria Stuarda, as well as, of course, in Barbara Seville, is going to be playing Benedict. The other roles are all single cast. Lara Tatalescu, we just saw as Despina, and of course was uh, Susanna with us a couple of years ago. She is staying on to sing Hero, the much wronged daughter of Leonardo. Claudio is sung by Craig Verm, who again we just saw as Guglielmo and previously as um, Papageno in Magic Flute. Kevin Burdett, who we hadn't seen for a while before he came back for Don Alfonso, is playing Somaroni, who in this version has a bit of Dogberry, Master of a Watch, rolled into his character of Somaroni, which is an invention of, of Berlioz, who's a sort of choir master, as it were. So we're given the feeling that uh, just as the watch were part-time, um, they weren't a professional police force. So he's, uh, he's you know, part-time florist in the city, he's part-time choir master, and he's part-time uh, constable of watch. Kevin, you know, we saw his extraordinary uh, comic abilities, so we're looking forward to seeing him play Somaroni. Daniel Somegi, who is with us for four of our five operas this season. He wasn't in Cusi Fantotti, but he's coming back to sing Ramphis as, uh, as well, and of course gave us Basilio and the Bonds. He is going to play Don Pedro. A wonderful singer who we're delighted to give a debut to is Avery Amaro, who is going to play Ursula, hero's confidant and, and maid. And I mentioned earlier that we have some wonderful actors coming over from Act Theatre. So it's great fun also to have them with us. Marvin Grays is playing the role of Leonardo, which is a role which features in Berlioz's scheme of things. 
Chip Sherman is playing two roles. He's playing the very important role of the messenger who enters and brings news of a return of the forces from, from a battle, which sets the train of events in motion. And he then will return in the second act as Friar Francis, who officiates over the wedding, but then provides the solution to the dilemma occasioned by the slander of Hero. Don John, the illegitimate brother of Don Pedro, is uh, played by Brandon O'Neill. The rather villainous Boraccio, his sidekick, is played by Avery Clark, and the role of Margaret, who gets unwittingly involved in, in the, the evil plot, is played by Christine Murray Brown. So we've got this fabulous company of, of singers and actors, and, and even a day into rehearsal, I can see they're all knitting together to make a, a, a wonderful ensemble, with, and with John and, and Ludovic at the helm, I know we have a real treat in store. Visually, we have costumes uh, set. I, I, I guess I'd put it kind of late 19th century. The idea of the men being soldiers returning from a campaign is very important. So the opera and indeed the play start off with a celebration that the men folk have survived the campaign. It's an important theme, so there are these marvellous military uniforms which help emphasise the the rather male-dominated society, the values of of honour and and battle. Costumes which really give a a wonderful pop of colour. Those wonderful costumes are the work of Deb Trout, who's no stranger to Seattle Opera, but uh, Matthew Smucker, who's making his debut as a set designer, has come up with an environment which really allows the eavesdropping scenes to, to speak, but also allows the energy of the piece to be propelled and also to change mood where needed. So I think we're in for something of a visual treat for this one.